All right, so let's open up to Philippians chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read the text. It's verses 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Others also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Lord, we just bow our heads and our hearts and pray that you would speak to us through this writing of the Apostle Paul. May it minister life and grace, conviction, inspiration. May it do your work in our hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all heard people speak about having a proper perspective. Right? Someone might say something like, we need to make sure we have the proper perspective on this situation before rushing into any hasty conclusions. Or someone might say something like, the four Gospels were written by four different men, each viewing the life of Jesus Christ from a different perspective. So what do we mean when we talk about having a perspective on something? What we really mean is it's a mental outlook, or a way of looking at things, a viewpoint. And what I want to help you see is Paul's viewpoint on suffering, living, and dying. So Paul had a particular viewpoint or mental outlook or a way of looking at things when it came to suffering, when it came to how he lived, and then when it came to how he died. And the, the thing about it is that a lot depends on what kind of perspective you have about a certain situation. The same situation can be viewed from one perspective as a terrible trial, or it can be looked at from another perspective as an exciting challenge. The glass can be either half empty or half full, 
depending on what viewpoint, what perspective you take when you look at that situation. And so that's why it's so important for us to have a God-centered perspective. You might call it a divine perspective. How does God view suffering? How does God view our living? How does God view our dying? That's what we want to take a look at this morning. And I think that Paul can help us with this because in our text this morning we see the perspective of a very, a very godly man. He saw suffering in a certain lens. He saw his own living in a certain way. He saw his dying in a certain way. And I think we can learn a lot from his example. I think that's why Paul was able to accomplish so much for Christ during his lifetime. It's because of his perspective on suffering, living, and dying. And I think that we will bear more fruit and have a greater influence for Christ in our lifetime if we take a divine perspective on these things. So we're going to look at these three areas. Suffering, living, and dying. So let's take a look at a, a God-centered perspective on suffering, first of all. And we get that perspective in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Now, go back to verse 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What circumstances was Paul talking about? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, verse 13. So that my imprisonment, that's the circumstance he's talking about. His imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. And then in verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So it's obvious that Paul's thinking about being in prison right now. And he has a particular perspective on his own imprisonment. Now, think back to the life of Paul. He had suffered a lot for the cause of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we read how he was falsely accused by the Jews. He was nearly lynched by this religious mob. He had to be rescued by a centurion. Later, more than 40 Jews formed this deadly plot. They took a vow that they wouldn't eat until Paul had been killed. They must have broke their vow because Paul never died, and I'm sure they didn't fast until they died. So, But anyway, they did take a, a vow. They were going to do this. Paul later spent several years in prison in Caesarea. He Finally, he appealed to Caesar, and so... He traveled to Rome to appeal to Caesar, but on his way there, he nearly died in a shipwreck. Remember that story about that, that, how the ship, they threw the cargo overboard and they were fasting for days. And Paul finally said, take courage. God has revealed to me that we're not going to die. We're all going to survive. Finally, they brought, they brought him to Rome to appeal to Caesar. When he arrived in Rome, he was bound in chains and was under house arrest for two years waiting an uncertain decision of the Roman emperor. He didn't know if he was going to live or die during those two years. But what was Paul's perspective? Notice what he says. Verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. In other words, I can see how God is causing all things to work together for good. The gospel is progressing. It's advancing, even though I'm here in prison and can't get out and I don't have my freedom, but the gospel is still free. So, exactly how did this happen? That the gospel was advancing while Paul was in prison? Well, first of all, 
take notice of this. The gospel took root while Paul was in prison. The whole praetorian guard was aware of Paul's imprisonment. He tells us that in verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Now what is a praetorian guard? <laughs> we need to answer that question. This was the elite soldiers of the imperial guard that were stationed at Rome. So here Paul is in prison in Rome and there's this elite band of soldiers and part of their responsibility was to guard uh, convicted prisoners that were awaiting their sentence before they saw Caesar. And so Paul says that his imprisonment in the cause of Christ had become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard. There were thousands of soldiers in Rome that made up this Praetorian Guard. So it's not one or two guards. It, was, it, it had become well known throughout the whole thing. So thousands of these guards had become aware that Paul was being imprisoned, not because he had committed some vile crime, but because of a religious situation where he was speaking out boldly for Jesus Christ. And Paul was chained to one of these guards night and day. We know that from the book of Ephesians. In chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul was an ambassador in chains. Ephesians was written during the same time period as Philippians. And so Paul says, yeah, I, I'm in chains there in Rome. So Paul was chained... He was chained to one of these guards night and day. These guards took a, um, a six-hour vigilant watch over a prisoner. So the guards would be changed out four times a day. There would be four different guards chained to Paul throughout one 24-hour period of time. And so after two years, imagine how many of these guards had been chained to Paul while he's in prison. And what's Paul doing for two years while he's in prison, chained to these guards. Well, the book of Acts tells us that he, he was under house arrest and he could entertain anybody who came to visit him. So different Christians were traveling and visiting Paul while he was in prison. And Paul, no doubt, was fellowshipping with them, teaching them the word of God, preaching to them. And of course, <laughs> this guard is chained to him. So the guard is being subjected to preaching and teaching nonstop for two years. And when Paul isn't teaching or preaching, he's writing letters to the churches. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during this time, as well as perhaps others that we don't know about. So he's writing letters. He's singing praises, probably like he did in another prison in Philippi, which is the letter he's writing to. Remember, that's when the earthquake, earthquake took place. He's praying because he tells these churches that he's praying for them without ceasing. So here's a guard chained to Paul. And they're listening to preaching and teaching. They're watching him write these letters. They're listening to him pray. They're listening to him sing praises. And I've got to believe that Paul was witnessing to these guards at the same time. How else did his imprisonment in the cause of Christ become well known throughout thousands of these guards in Rome? And not only to them, to everyone else. And not only that, but if you go back to chapter 4, or flip over a few chapters, in chapter 4, verse 22... He says to the Philippians, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So how did the saints get to be in Caesar's household? 
Well, no doubt it was through Paul's influence. As the guards came to Christ, they would talk to their families. The families would talk to other families. And these guards had access into the into Caesar's household. This is, was in his, his own... The Caesar's household was not talking about just his own uh, nuclear family. It's talking about an extended network of slaves and servants that would serve him and do his will. So Caesar's household, some of these servants there that are serving Caesar had come to know Jesus Christ and they're sending greetings now to the Philippians. So there's a real move of the Spirit of God going on within the city of Rome because Paul is in prison. And that's what Paul is rejoicing about. He, he says, I want you to know, brethren, don't feel sorry for me. I want you to know that my imprisonment has caused there to be this, this working of the gospel uh, in Rome. And many people have come to Christ. And people from Caesar's household have been saved. And a great, wonderful work is going on. So instead of being depressed and down and upset and angry with God, Paul's rejoicing in prison because he sees the hand of God. He sees what God is doing. Can you imagine being a preacher and having your congregation chained to you night and day? <laughs> you know, talk about a captive audience. There they are. Can't get away. So Paul had been successful in his witness. His case had become headline news. Everyone else had heard about it as well. That's why he says in chapter 1 verse 13, it's become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. So the gospel was advancing while Paul was in prison, but not only that, the gospel was advancing outside of those prison walls. And that's what he tells us next. He says that there are two groups of brothers that are preaching Christ. There's one group of brothers that are preaching Christ from goodwill and love. There's another group of brothers that are preaching Christ from envy, strife, and selfish ambition. But as we're going to see in just a minute, Paul really didn't care what their motive was. He was just happy that they were preaching Christ. So let's look at these two groups. First of all, the group of brothers that are preaching Christ from goodwill and love. Look at verse 15. Actually, back up to 14. He says, Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter, the latter meaning those who are preaching from goodwill, they do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So Paul's imprisonment was giving the brothers more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now try to put yourself back in this time frame. Nero was the Caesar at that time. Nero was the emperor. And Nero was a bloodthirsty tyrant. Scores of people were executed by Nero simply because he didn't trust them. That's the kind of era that Paul, that Paul lived in. And Paul was a prisoner during that time. And during his reign, the church began to fall under suspicion. And so it was a scary time for anybody to preach out boldly about Jesus Christ. But the brethren looked at Paul and his example. And he was there in prison and he was speaking out boldly for Christ, even though he didn't know if it was going to cost him his life or he was going to be released. And it gave them courage, far more courage, to speak the word of God without fear. 
They had Paul's example. Hey, if Paul can do it, and he's in prison in Rome, and guards are guarding him, then why can't we do it here in Philippi or somewhere else? And so it was giving them courage to speak out the word of God. And when they learned that Paul was in prison, they, they redoubled their efforts to spread the gospel. See, they loved Paul. It says here that they do it out of love, love for Christ, and also love for Paul. They knew that the best way to delight Paul's heart was to make sure that the work of the gospel didn't suffer while he was in prison. As though somehow, if the devil could get Paul locked up in prison, the gospel was going to be silenced. But not at all. Because these other brothers started to rise up and take his place and begin speaking out boldly for the gospel. So they were preaching out of goodwill towards Paul and of love for Paul. But then there's another group. And they're preaching out of envy, strife, and selfish ambition. Look at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. And then verse 17 says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So there was another group of people. And they had learned about Paul's imprisonment. And they figured, hey, this is a great opportunity for us. Paul's locked away. Paul was this famous preacher within the early church. And he's no longer able to preach publicly and boldly within the public square like he once did. He's, he's locked away. So here's a great opportunity to, for us to make a name for ourselves. We can replace Paul. We can become the rising star within the church. All his disciples will flock to us. We'll steal them away. We'll become this, you know, we'll, we'll attract the acclaim and the attention that Paul once had. And say they were doing it from envy. They were envious of Paul's attention and the popularity and the acclaim that he had within the church. They strove and they had this selfish ambition where they're wanting to, to gather a following and take advantage of the fact that Paul was not free to preach to draw away the disciples after them. Now, that brings us down to Paul's perspective on his suffering in prison. Look at verse 18. What then? Here it comes. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So, Paul didn't care who got the credit. It's kind of interesting. He didn't care if these other guys got the credit or they became famous. All he really cared about was that Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. And even if it was from wrong motives, at least Jesus' name was being proclaimed out in the public square. People were hearing about Jesus and his gospel. The only thing that really mattered to Paul was that Jesus Christ was being preached and the gospel was making advances. So he saw his own sufferings were turning out for the greater progress of the gospel. Everyone seemed to be preaching Christ. Some from good motives, some from bad motives, but hey, Paul, Paul would take it. <laughs> Jesus is being preached. So he's rejoicing because his own Savior and Lord is being preached everywhere. And those people that were afraid and timid and scared of preaching now are receiving courage because they see his example and they're being inspired by his example. So, I want you to take notice of something. Paul did not rejoice because of his suffering. 
I think he was rejoicing because of the fruit of his suffering. In other words, Paul was at a masochist who delights in pain. Right? And neither should we. We shouldn't take pleasure in pain. That's not what God asks us to do. Paul was taking delight in the fact that the gospel is making advances in spite of his own pain and the fact that he was locked up and had lost his liberty. The gospel still had free reign and it was doing his work in the world. And so the fruit of the gospel was what Paul take the, took this joy in. And so I want to cause all of us to, to take stock of, of situations where we might be suffering or going through trials in our life but we need to get a divine perspective on those trials. So, let's say you get sick with COVID-19 and you end up in the hospital like one brother in our own church did for like three weeks. Didn't know if he was going to live or die. We can take joy even in that or say we're injured and end up in the hospital or something like that because now there's an opportunity for us to speak to the doctors, the nurses, the patients, the guy in the bed right next to us about Christ. There's more opportunities that have suddenly opened up for us for the gospel. That would be right in line of how Paul was rejoicing here that the gospel was advancing in his own imprisonment. Or let's say you lose your job and you lose your home and you have to end up into a cheap rundown rental someplace. You can rejoice because now you've got a whole new neighborhood of new neighbors that you've never got to speak to about Christ before and you can begin to pray for them and talk to them about Jesus Christ. Or let's say you're, you're persecuted on your job because of your faith. You can rejoice because you know that the gospel's making an influence there. It's being felt. You see, turn the situation around. There's, you can always look at something from this direction or turn it around and look at it from another direction. And let's take God's perspective on these situations rather than just the negative one. Let's look at the positive one, how God sees that thing. So instead of cursing the darkness, let's light a candle. Amen? Okay, so that's Paul's perspective on suffering. Let's look at his perspective on living. And we find that in verses 19 to 26. He says in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. So here he's referring to his upcoming trial and he wants to bear a bold testimony for Jesus Christ before Caesar. He doesn't want to shrink back from declaring this bold testimony to Jesus Christ. Now he knows if they acquit him, he'll live. They'll set him free. If they condemn him, he's going to die. And so if they execute him, he says, I'm going to exalt Jesus Christ because before I'm executed, I'm going to declare boldly the gospel to the emperor and to anybody else who's listening. So I'm going to exalt Christ if I die. But if I live, I'm going to exalt Christ because I'm going to go back to work serving the churches and teaching them and planting churches and raising up disciples and men of God. So no matter what happens to me, I'm going to exalt Christ. That's what he's saying here. So that Christ will now as always even be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. So he wants to have this bold 
testimony and not be put to shame when it comes to making testimony for Christ. And then notice verse 21. Paul gives us his philosophy of life here. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he wasn't living for money or fame or pleasure or power, which are the, the four big things that you find that people usually will live for. Money, fame, pleasure, or power. Paul was living for Christ. For to me to live is Christ. The object of his life was to love and worship and serve Jesus Christ. His life was wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It reminds me of uh, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army in England in the second half of the 19th century. He once was asked to sign a book of, uh, of the king. So when he was asked to sign the guest book for King Edward VII, he summed up his life's work. He wrote this, Your Majesty, some man's ambition is art, some man's ambition is fame, some man's ambition is gold. My ambition is the souls of men. Similar in some respects to the way Paul summed up his life. To live is Christ. So what is your philosophy of life? Does yours match Paul's? Can you say for to me to live is Christ? Now if you ask some people, what's your philosophy of life? What are you living for? They might say, for to me to live is money and to die is to leave it all behind. Or for me to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. Or for me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. Or for, for me to live is Christ plus money, or pleasure, or fame, or power. I want it all. I want it all together. Paul, Paul didn't answer that way. For to me to live is Christ. And I want all of us this morning to really consider where is our heart today? Where is our passion what is our focus and direction? Can we truthfully say, for to me, to live is Christ? We need to be able to say that. We need to be of a single mind. We need to be able to say that my life is wrapped up in Jesus and His gospel and His kingdom and His glory and His honor. He should be our one true passion in life. So that everything else we do, and we will have many other things that we do in life, but they're all, they all revolve around Christ and we're looking for ways to honor and glorify Him in our work, in our play, in our recreation, in our relationships. In all that we do, Christ is to be honored. And we're to seek the advancement of His cause in the world. Now the second thing I want you to see about Paul was that he lived to serve the church. For to me to live is Christ... But how did Paul live for Christ? He did it by serving Christ's church. That's how he did it. And we know that because of what he writes here. Look at verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor. Verse 23. I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You see who he's thinking about? He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the church he's leaving behind. And then verse 25. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul is thinking about the church. Fruitful labor. It's more necessary for their sakes that he stay. He wants their progress in the faith. He wants their joy in the faith. So Paul was willing just to lay down his life in service on behalf of the church for their progress and their joy in the faith. And that's why he talks about later in this letter about, he says, I'm, I'm like a drink offering and I'm being poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I, I just pour out my life for you. What an awesome example. You see, if we're going to say, for to me to live is Christ, we need to also be able to say, I manifest that love for Christ by living to serve his church. That's how we can show that to, for to me to live is Christ. So the question is, what are you living for? Paul said he was living for Christ. The way he showed that he was living for Christ is by using his life to build up Christians, to serve Christians. He wanted them to make progress in their faith. He wanted them to have joy in their faith. And so he laid down his life in service for others. So what about us? What drives you what gets you out of bed? What motivates you? What are you hoping will happen in the future? What are, what are your ambitions? What do they revolve around? Wouldn't it be beautiful if all of us could say, my greatest joy, my, my, my greatest desire for the future is that God would do this in, in the people's lives that I know. Or that the Lord would work a revival within our city or that we would see people coming to Christ or that we would see new churches being planted that it had to do with the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ rather than our, just our own personal desires or wishes or having our needs or desires met but, but it goes beyond that and that's, that's what Paul would say so what do you most want to see happen in the future what if we all could say this? The thing that I most want to see happen in the future is the joy of being used by God on behalf of His church. I want God to use me to serve His church. So how can that happen? What, how can we serve Jesus by serving His church? There's so many ways that it's almost countless. But here are some ways that I thought of. When someone's sick, taking them a meal. I remember that we were attending another church when mom had an operation on she had an operation on her toe and people were bringing us meals and how much that meant to us that this display of love to help us during that time or when someone is pregnant and delivers a baby and and so bringing them meals or cleaning up their house when they just have no time to do that kind of thing serving the church maybe it has to do with meeting with a younger believer in the faith and meeting with them on a weekly basis and doing everything you can to help them to make advances in their own Christian life. Maybe they need to learn how to understand the Bible or witness to their friends or how to have a prayer life. And so you're, you're meeting with them, trying to help them in their Christian life. Maybe it means going to a convalescent hospital and just ministering to the elderly that are forgotten 
and just visiting with them, praying for them, singing praise songs to them, brightening up their day. It's a way of serving Christ. Maybe it means all of you intentionally praying and thinking about what word of encouragement you can bring to the body so that you don't try to think of it while you're here all week long. You're asking God to give you a word of encouragement when you come so that you're actively ministering to the church. It could be as simple as providing a meal when we have fellowship after the service. It could mean coming early to set up for the meeting or staying late to tear down. That's a way you can serve the church. It, it could mean giving generously to the Sacramento Gospel Mission. Uh, giving generously to the bridge as we, we dispense most of our monies to different missionaries. It's uh, Gospel for Asia, uh, the Sacramento Gospel Mission, Heart Cry, and various other individuals that are doing the Lord's work. So it can mean that. It, it can mean participating in prison ministries. And the list goes on and on and on. So we need to be actively praying and thinking, Lord, how can you use me to serve, serve your church? How can I lay down my life so that I'm not just wrapped up in my own life and my own family and I think of nothing other than that? No, we need to break out of that idea. We need to break out. If God is going to use us during our short and fleeting life, we're going to have to repent of selfish and misplaced priorities where we focus all of our time, energy, and money on ourselves rather than for Christ and His work in the earth. Paul's perspective can teach us a whole lot here. So that was Paul's perspective on living. For to me to live is Christ and to serve Christ's church. What was his perspective on dying? Look at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the first thing we need to learn about what he thought about dying. It's gain. Now, gain is to have more of the same thing. So, if to live is Christ and to die is gain, that means to live is Christ and to die is to have more of Christ. Right? So Paul looked at dying as gain because he would have more of Christ than he did while he lived on the earth in his fallen condition. He would be in an unfallen condition without the hindrances of sin in his life, being able to enjoy fellowship and communion with Christ face to face. So it was more of Christ. Look at verse 23. He says, I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Notice that word depart. The Greek word behind this word depart carries the meaning of to take down a tent and move on. Or to loosen the ship's rope and set sail. So dying is not ceasing to exist. Dying is to, to move from one place to another place. It's to leave your body behind and then your soul moves on into a whole new realm of existence in heaven, in the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. So it's to take then the tent of our earthly body and move into the heavenly realm, or to be released from this earthly life and to set sail for heaven's shore. <laughs> so Paul says, I'm ready to depart. I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ. Let's take that next phrase, be with Christ. 
There are a few denominations that teach the doctrine of soul sleep. I don't know. Are you guys familiar with that? Nobody? Okay, soul sleep is the doctrine that when a believer dies, they go into a state of unconsciousness. They, they're conscious of nothing. They're, their body goes into the ground and their soul sleeps then. Uh, it sleeps until the day of the resurrection and then they are raised from the dead and then they have consciousness again. So basically when a believer dies they say they're, they're conscious of nothing until Jesus raises them from the dead. I think that's an error and I think that's an error because of what Paul says here. Paul says I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. So departing, by departing he means dying. I have the desire to die and to be with Christ. So Paul believed that when he died he wouldn't go to sleep, he would be with Christ. And I have to believe that he meant be consciously with Christ. What, what advantage would it be? Why would it be very much better if he didn't even know anything was going on during a thousand or ten thousand year existence <laughs> until the day of the resurrection? That doesn't make any sense to me. It only makes sense if he knew that he was going to be ushered into the very presence of Jesus Christ. Now later on, his soul would be reunited to a resurrected body and he would live on the new heavens and the new earth. But there is a, this intermediate state where our souls are with Christ in heaven. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, not to be asleep until the day of the resurrection. Notice another phrase here, verse 23. He says, for that is very much better. Paul says to die is very much better than to live. He doesn't just say it's better or even that it's much better. He says it's very much better. So when he, he holds out living and dying on this scale, dying is a slam dunk. It's, it's way better than living in Paul's perspective. And that's what we're talking about this morning, right? Perspectives. We need to get, gain this. This is the divine, the God-centered perspective is that death is better than life. Because Paul now could enjoy face-to-face -face direct communication with Jesus Christ in an unfallen world without the hindrances of sin. He said that's very much better. Now notice also, he says in verse, let me find it. Verse 22, he says, I do not know which to choose. He says, I'm hard pressed from both directions. So he looks at dying, here's an option. Living, there's an option. I don't know which one to choose. He, have you ever been in a situation where you just didn't know which one to choose? Paul felt just uncertain. What's the, what should I do here? As though he had the power to choose one or the other. He really didn't. But if given him the option, he, he's not sure what he should do. Dying's very much better, but if he lives, he says he would have fruitful labor. He, it would be more necessary for the church's sake. And so when he thinks of all of that, he says, convinced of that, I know that I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In other words, the church needed Paul. It wasn't his time to go yet. God still had work for him to do. God had fruitful labor for him to accomplish before he went on to be with the Lord. 
So what I want you to see here is one of the marks of spiritual maturity is having a greater and a greater desire to be with the Lord in heaven. If someone gave you a choice, right? If God gave you a choice, you can either live on until you're 90 years old or I can take you right now. Would there be a battle going on in your life? You know, would you say, hey, I'm ready. Take me, Lord. Let's go. <laughs> That's what Paul would say. But sometimes we're grasping for the things of earth, aren't we? Now, I think there's a very real... Uh, reticence on our part. We don't, we hate the idea of living, leaving and saying a permanent goodbye to our loved ones, our family, our friends. That's difficult for us. And that's what death means. A permanent goodbye to those people that we love. But it's also a permanent hello to another one that we love. And so that's why there is this tension going on. So, what is your perspective on dying? If you knew that you were going to die in the next year, the next 12 months, let's say you even knew the date, how would you feel about that? Let's say that the Lord re revealed somehow to you that you're going to die on October 24th of this year. That's only a few months away. What would you think? What would you feel? Would it fill you with dread or fear or anxiety about that? Maybe uncertainty? That's not good. The child of God should be able to have an assurance of their salvation. And I, I'm not, in this message, I'm not encouraging you to take matters into your own hands. Only God has the right to give life or to take life. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's in His hands. All I'm encouraging you to do is examine your heart and do you have a real desire to be with the Lord? I, I, and I hope that desire is growing every year that you know the Lord and it's growing stronger in your life. So may God wean our hearts from the attractions and allurements of this present world and enthrall us with the attractions and the allurements of the world to come. So, what have we seen? What, what is the God-centered perspective on suffering? Rejoice when you see the Lord advancing His kingdom in spite of your suffering. That's what Paul would tell you. Rejoice in that. What about living? The purpose of life should be to exalt Jesus Christ and to serve His church. That's why we're here. Let's make sure that we're fulfilling the purpose of why God made us, why He saved us. Let's serve Let's be actively involved in evangelism and service and loving our neighbor. And what's the God-centered perspective on dying? It's merely a departing to be with Jesus Christ. We should look forward to it with joyful anticipation. So may God help us to adopt His perspectives on suffering, life, and death. Amen? Lord, we turn our hearts to You right now. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to perform surgery with our hearts. If you have convicted us in one point or another in this passage this morning, 
We pray that you would wean us from the things of this world, Lord, that they would mean less to us, and that being with Jesus in heaven would mean more and more to us. And we pray that you would help us to fulfill the reason that you've saved us. Lord, that we would not become selfish and ingrown and just self-centered, thinking only about our, ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be others-centered and service-minded, and that, Lord, we would be pouring out our lives for others. Show us how we can best do that with the gifts and the talents that you've given each one of us. And, Lord, we do pray for a divine perspective in our trials. Lord, help us to see what you're doing and that you are causing all things to work together for good. And help us to take joy in that. This we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.